and we're live. Well, welcome everybody to another Real Talk with Rob Tabby. Today I have Dennis Reed, Senior Research Analyst from Edgewater Research. They get into all, I mean, electronics is what the Real Talk is all about. And we brought on a Senior anal Research Analyst talking about all the data and insights about electronics, the supply chain components, breaking them down, really what's going on in the market. You know, they have great, they have great analytics, they sit out, uh, things monthly, quarterly, they have webinars, and Dennis has done a great job of really uh, enhancing and really sharing that data to the masses to really understand what's going on into the world today and how the future is into electronics. So welcome, Dennis. Welcome to The Real Talk. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Rob, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I mean, I know we've been chatting back and forth going back in the past, probably this past year, um, and it's been good. I mean, a lot of, a lot of things happening you know a lot of things we can't control a lot of global uh issues a lot of challenges you know monetary policy a lot of things happening that's really i mean from post kind of post pandemic now from that side now having a lot of other issues coming back so it's changing a lot the the way we play every day and the the many especially the manufacturing supply chain components it, i i you know i couldn't i couldn't agree more it, it's been um it's been fascinating on one hand just to look at, at how dynamic and I you know Rob you've been in the business for a while so you know it's a pretty dynamic industry anyway you cut it but while I, I struggle and I'm tired of hearing the word unprecedented what we've gone through from a supply chain really is unprecedented and I've given a lot of webinars speaking engagements and, and it's it's amazing when you run through just a snapshot of all the disruption we've seen Almost every person I could start and end with, you know, we've been through all of this, but you don't need to out yourself. But I'm willing to bet most people sitting in the audience are sitting at record profits and record sales right now. So, you know, credit to everybody in the supply chain. It's been impressive with all the disruption, how dynamic it is and the ability that we've shown to bend, but most certainly not break under it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean. There's a lot of adversities, a lot of people call pivots during the COVID going to home. A lot of things changed in the in the ecosystems of manufacturing, globalization, process. And then also, I mean, of course, a lot of the monetary side of spend of changes in the way we live and work today. A lot of that has to do with how we're driving. Of course, there are, I mean, the future is bright. I mean, the pandemic has set that fuse of the technology revolution, I would think, for in this next decade. Um, but again, we're going to go through some peaks and valleys a lot because where are we? Where Where is the, what's going on in the world? I mean, a lot of geopolitics, the challenges, that uncertainties, logistics issues. I mean, there's so much out there still with constraints and uncertainties that we, it's hard to predict the future. But what you guys at Edge, you know, Edgewater Research do is help us read the data, take the data in. Mm -hmm. Look at what happened in the past and kind of, you know, formulate what we can do for the moon and, and calculate a strategy, especially for you know, listeners right now to understand really what we're we trying to do for the future and what, what is the data telling us? It, it, it's, you know, where we sit right now, and you, you touched on a lot of it from geopolitical to monetary policy to demand drivers and, and, you know, where we sit with all of those factors go. And I think the thing that we're discussing internally is is kind of the nature of structural changes versus cyclicality in our business and, and i think it's prudent to think of those 
those two items right now where we sit. So from a, a cyclical standpoint, and I'm sure we'll get into this in a later, you know, a little later in, in the in the pod, it, it's clear the the best of days are kind of behind this up cycle from from just a pure cyclicality. Yes, there's still some key components. There's golden screws, things of that nature, but inventory is far from lean across the supply chain. And near term, you know, demand is is ultimately slowing, and we're seeing some of the double bookings and things like that that typically show up in cyclical upturns and cyclical downturns. Those are all present. So you've got your cyclical puts and takes here near term, but when you look at the structural demand drivers, whether it's the proliferation of 5G, whether it's you know industrial 4.0, automotive, whether it's you know compute and storage with connected devices throughout the world, you know, those structural changes in the business have really issued, you know, ushered us into a new era that has been an accelerated growth environment. I think over the long term, of course, that doesn't mean it, it's a linear line straight up and to the right, but, you know, balancing kind of structural growth versus your cyclicality of the business is kind of where I think we sit in the environment right now. Yeah, I mean, there... I 100% agree. I mean, to give the, some of the listeners um, more insights, I mean, you guys create a lot of, um, put out a lot of publications or a lot of emails of data and insights. Like, I think you have Electronic Supply Chain Weekly Digest. You sent that out. You have High Performance Analog Supply Chain Email. You have Memory Insights. You have Passive Discrete Interconnect Insights. You have Technology Inventory Analysis, like how much, you know, finished goods and technology sitting out there. And also, I know you also host uh, quarterly webinars, you know, and looking out in the future, quarter ahead, and looking out to the future. So, through these, I mean, all this data collected, can you can you break some of these down? Really, you know, how, what is your process? What is Edgewire's process and your process to really aggregate this data, talk to the, the you know the stake of the, the parties of you know that where you get the data from, and then putting it together, formulating it to to the customer, to the user, to the public. A absolutely. So you know the way we view the world. So as a, as a firm. We cover hard tech, so the, the areas that you mentioned, Rob, so high performance analog, passive discrete, interconnect, CPU, GPU, memory, hard drive. So really the nuts and bolts, if you will, uh, of the technology. We've got a group that focuses predominantly on the consumer space. So we're looking at at least 50% of sell through. So we've got a decent end to end. And then layering on top of that, we've got a group that focuses on the digital world. So digital advertising is growing, you know, as a significant portion of the consumer side of the business. Those same people are also growing importance with procurement of the components. So that's where we focus really our products, trying to look end to end. In our process, we take what we call a bottoms up approach. So yeah, I spend probably 95% of my days on the phone with people like yourself, right? And, and, and what we're trying to do in, in the way we view the world, and it might be a little bit overly simplistic, but if you can figure out bookings, billings, inventory, lead times, and pricing, you know, those kind of handful of, of building blocks you've got a decent idea of what's driving this supply chain. So our process being bottoms up, and, and of course we, we don't take an ostrich approach. We're looking top downs, we're looking at GDP growth, we're looking at the macros, things like that. But really 
by the time those top-down factors inflect good or bad, it's really too late for our customers' businesses. So by the bottoms-up approach and having these conversation and then on our team layering over 50 years of experience of doing this type of research, you know, there's a little bit of an art and a little bit of a science. And, and you know, from the science side, it's a repeated process. We've had relationships with these people for decades. So we've We've been able to somewhat validate, you know, what they see is is accurate, you know, through various economic conditions, various market cycles. And then the art is is our ability with that experience to say, you know, I've heard this before. This reminds me of X, Y, Z period in the past. While it might not be the same, um, you know, it gives us a certain foundation as we think about when businesses are going to, you know, either inflect higher or lower. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, you hit a couple points there talking about the historical information of what we've seen. We've seen any types of uh, repetitive motion of what we've seen in the past that we're seeing today, some inflection points like, whoa, you know, how, how they talk about in the monetary side, like, you know, it, uh, you know, it, it comes to a lot of that. Say, oh, this is the historical that happened the GFC side or the great financial, mm -hmm. you know, taking a lot of those data points and saying, are we seeing similar things through the data insights today are, are you know, are, what is going on today and um, and using that to really, hey, there could be an alert, there could be a caution, there could be what's going on. And as we know, all know right now, there are slowdowns. I mean, there are slowdowns, there are inventory buildups. There is a lot of, um, with the monetary fiscal policies of the world and a lot of the money is not as inflation and money is not as free as it was anymore because it's costlier. Things, people pull back. You know, a lot of things pull back. A lot of things change. And those forces also dictate because at the end of the day, we're consumer spending. Uh, you know, economy, you know, consumer industrial, consumer drives it. Because as soon as consumers start driving and start pulling back a little bit, it's going to start affecting the industrial and the infrastructure and all the things that pulled out. So there's kind of a chain reaction. And we've seen the consumer spend this last six months, especially mm -hmm. this, or the year, last three quarters slow down. Um, because I think the the two years of pandemic, everybody bought everything they yeah. could and they're stocked up, you know, so there is a time of gap. But what I want to ask from your sim, what have you seen? Say, look, let's look at 2022, uh, sure. the three quarters. What have you seen that, that showed some alerts or some concerns of what's going on in industry, especially in, in reflect from the you know the component side, manufacturing distribution? What do you see on that end? Sure. So, you know, I, I think that there's there's two markets that are the easiest to, to point out just because it's a pretty clear, transparent unit uh, market being PCs and smartphones. And they're also about 50% of silicon consumed globally. So, you know, when we go back to January 1 of this year, you know, last year for PCs, there were 330 million units shipped globally. Prior to COVID, that was a 275 million unit base that was growing 2-3% per year that obviously accelerated, right? We've had kids at school, you know, kids doing school at home, significant pull forward in demand. And that's really easy to see through the unit shipment. So, you know, there was a mindset in the supply chain on Jan 1 that we're in the new normal, which is another cliche that I'm about tired of hearing with everything. But, you know, we're in a new normal and, and PCs are going to grow 10%. So this year should be 365 million not off the 330 base. Well, you know, here we are nine, 10 months in, 
And the supply chain right now is at about a 295 million unit number for the year. So we've seen, call it 60 to 70 million units being taken out and drastic order cuts to that to on the component slot suppliers. You would think that's enough. The problem is every month demand looks a little slower. First, it was just the consumer, as you referenced. Now we're starting the cycle more in to the enterprise where you're cycling against a Win Windows 11 launch last year. You're cycling into, you know, believe it or not, two years ago, people showed up to an office and used a desktop. And, and you had you know you had to send them home with a notebook and understandably so you know we're cycling that and, and we've yet to really see a bottom in in pcs which probably will be next year right at the 275 number so that incremental growth from the you know call it 2021 will come out of the market and will normalize from there like what you know little different reasoning behind the smartphone that's a 1.2 ish billion unit uh, market this year was going to grow five percent china's been locked down with their zero COVID strategy significant downside to just demand in mainland china in particular so now we've seen that market go zero you know from up five to down five so again another you know, call it 120, 130 million units coming out. So, you know, that's what's gone on from, from an end demand for the big inflections, unfortunately, the downside. Now, what does it mean for the markets ultimately that are a little harder to decipher? Your industrials, your automotives, your medicals, you know, these areas. The way for cut, well, I shouldn't say the way for allocation would be a better way than cuts. You know, those all started, call it May, June, when really the supply chain fully embraced. We've got a problem in PC. We've got a problem in smartphone. So you've seen wafers being allocated to industrial to automotive. And that's where, you know, in the near term, that capacity and that shift, there's a cycle time, right? So we're looking four or five months potentially in an extended supply constrained environment. We're right now, call it two to three weeks away from where that capacity hits. So, you know, the net of it is we see it. You've got capacity coming to the markets that have still been constrained, predominantly being auto and industrial. And as I mentioned, these are from a structural, these are great growth drivers, but they're not going to be able to outrun near term cyclicality. Um, so you have that capacity coming and then you're trying to you know, overlap. How does that play with PMIs dropping globally as a proxy for the industrial economy? You know, those are all the factors we're looking at. But, you know, I think the net of it, when we look into next year, probably more importantly, you know, next year is going to be more cyclical. I, I still think, you know, broadly for the semi-industry as a whole, we entered COVID at a $492 billion annual sales market. Okay. We're going to exit this decade at a trillion dollar market. And that's that's incredible, right? I, I, I don't, I think if you and I talked on March 15th of 2020, and I said, you know, I said, we're gonna exit this decade a trillion dollars. 
you would have told me I was crazy. So there's a lot to be excited about. But getting there, again, goes back to the weighing the cyclicality for some some of the structural growth drivers. Yeah, I mean, say the, as I said, the peaks and valleys, that's cyclical. The cyclical yeah. ups and downs and the adversities we're going to get through through that growth. Because you, you hit a lot of very valid points between the consumer side, PC, smartphones, and then now going into some of the industrial enterprise and the automotive. Of course, that is a driver because there's a lot of, lot of money now between automotive and EV. Absolutely. Build. But again, they're cyclical because you can't have consistent double-digit growth year over year. And that's really we and we had unprecedented growth because of stimulations of a of financial monetary systems putting money into the economies that kind of caused a lot of that. I, I you know, auto is an interesting one to, to us. So there there's there's you know, and we again we could talk cyclical growth for structural cyclical peaks and valleys, growth declines for structural. So the structural one's pretty easy to see. I mean, in 2020, there was 1.7 million EVs sold, and that's probably going to be a 50, you know, call it mid 50 million vehicle number by 2040. So in 20 years, significant growth. And your content there is is very easy to see. Today, you've got 300 bucks or so, three four hundred dollars worth of content in in an internal combustion engine vehicle that's at least 1500, right? So we're talking one EV is the equivalent of three, you know, hey, ice cars, ice, ice yeah. 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 You know, so that's your structural growth that is double digits, you know, by all means. Yeah. When you look at the cyclicality of auto and, and, and I'll focus a little bit on global production, but then ultimately just, you know, the SAR or kind of sales numbers here in the U.S. We're dealing with, I think, what you've seen in PCs and other markets. So, you know, from a production standpoint, the peak global auto production was somewhere 2017-ish, I think, around 95 million units globally were produced. We started Jan 1 of this year. The view was about 87 million units up from 80 last year. So 9-10% type growth due to supply chain component issues, everything else, which are real. We're only going to produce 78 million vehicles globally. That's a massive delta, right? When all semi-suppliers are putting up 20-30% growth. Likewise, when we look at just sales in the U.S., um, you know, the SAR peak, you know, in that same period, I think it was kind of 18, 19 million units for the U.S. on a seasonally adjusted basis. And, you know, we obviously bottomed out in COVID when the world shut down practically to zero, but we've we've rebounded back and we've gotten to this year where Jan 1, we said, oh, this is going to be a 16 million, you know, vehicles sold, and we're looking probably 13 and a half, 14 million this year. So a gap of two and a half million. Right now where we sit, call it October 1st for rounding sake, everyone's taking that two, two and a half million dollars in, uh, or two, two and a half million unit sales and saying, well, this is our backlog. Okay. Next year, that 13 or 14 million SAR, that's going to be 16 and a half, 17, because we're going to get all of our demand for 23 plus we're going to get caught up. 
that's where then we look top down and, and, you know, we don't have a direct answer for this, but that's where my concerns I would say come in is, is it's frankly expensive, right? It, it's, um, I haven't, you know, personally gone out to test what, a, what the rates are to finance a car, but you know, I've read the articles about financing a home and I know personally we've, we've refied our place, you know, February of this year and locked in a nice 2.9% loan. If we did it now, we'd be staring at 7%, right? So how does that transfer through and does that demand, you know, is that sale ultimately expendable? If you didn't catch it this year, did you lose it? Especially if your only barrier maybe you know, not making light of a $500 deposit, but let's say it's refundable. Do you really look out and say, can I get another year out of this car until prices come down? So very, very dynamic. And I would say, you know, cyclical, going back to the cyclical versus structural, the auto structural growths are great. I mean, I, you know, for those that'll be at ECIA, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some market sizing there at my presentation. The structural sides, very exciting over the next decade. But cyclical, I think, you know, we're going to have to adjust outside of this outsized growth before we return to it. I mean, getting the, the EVs are automotive. And we know, I mean, there's, I mean, the last years or so, you, you want to buy a car, there's no cars in the lots. You can't even get a car like it used to be. You know, to order them, there's a lot of dealer markups, a lot of people paying, you know, thousands over over the price to get, actually get one today and not waiting. And the, of course, you've got the supply chain disruptions, inflations and costs, a lot of those things. But within the cyclical, a lot of the models are changing. The, the business model of the consumer from manufacturer consumer is shifting too. And you go back to how Tesla created their, their model straight to consumer. Mm-hmm. I see already a lot of companies are changing the ways they're going to get to the consumer and they're changing the way they are made to order. They're going to improve the efficiency of a production. So you can get a car quickly by even ordering it, getting what you want, but you can get maybe a two, three or four week turnaround. Like I got my custom made color prop just like Tesla does because the consumer now is driven by that. And there are not so many options. Of course, different luxury cars to standard cars are different. But that model also saves these companies money because there's too many different variables. People don't understand an ICE car, an industrial combustion engine car, there is a lot of components. Switching to a, uh, meaning like a lot of mechanical components mm-hmm. to build one. When you're going to an EV car, they're much more, they're built uh, smart. They're, there's much more intelligence to smart, to build pieces, to reduce the amount of have instead of having th- a thousand pieces, you have a few hundred pieces. Reduces the amount of wear, process, the build time, turnaround, the chassis, the bolts, screws. Everything is universal between different models. You know, I think again, I got kind of what Tesla has proven this concept and it works. The challenge is a lot of companies have to catch up of that that forward thinking because again, there's a lot of politics. So there's a lot of going back to the other things, a lot of jobs involved, a lot of these yeah. tradesmen and these people in this industry that build industries out of automotive and it, it's a chain, you know? So there are a lot of those cyclical, but the changes of the way we do business and produce from logistics to producing innovation is changing. And that people look at, they have to pull back a little bit. Hey, let's, re, let's refocus. What is our go-to-market for the next three to five to this decade? Just like you said, a trillion dollar spend. What are we going to do to maximize profitability, efficiency, 
automation and people to really make sure our company is is future proof can go through these cyclical because we can't a lot of companies can't sustain this up and down yeah yeah no i, I you know we you started on the auto one and i'll, I'll yeah. put a little bit of data because i think we're in the midst of a change of how they go to market but then let's look Think about what you touched on with how you produce and what it means to the factory and the employees and everything else. So running into COVID, the dealer network in the U.S. was sitting on about 65 days worth of inventory of just finished vehicles sitting at your lots. In the first call it end of last year, one Q this year, you know, I don't know the exact date, but somebody somewhere in that window that inventory bottomed out at like 24 days significant shifts right in in in, you know where we sit in september is about 42 days so inventory is almost actually doubled but you mentioned when you drive by a dealer it looks pretty especially if you you know it's not like you buy a car every year right like when you're in a car it might have been pre-covid and you just remember Hey, back then I go in the last Thursday of the month and I'm coming ready to deal and get a get a deal because you know this guy's got to get a car off the lot. Yeah. You know, so what does that mean from how they go to market? And it touches a lot on what you said with with Tesla that's proven, you know, if you buy a Tesla, it's like shopping almost on Amazon, right? You build it, you put your credit card in, you get it, you know, it's held and it's delivered when it's done. I really think that's how your traditional OEM, not to that level, but I I can see an environment where 40 days is probably the restock level, right? There's certain models that are on the lot that you have the, oh no, I drove my car into a wall and I need a new one. It's a total with my insurance. I need it today. There's a certain lot, you know, there's a certain amount on the lot for that. There's probably a demo car and you know what let, let's you know a ford focus an f-150 whatever right whatever oem there's one of everything and you can go out and test whatever you want and then when you come through that oem you know where the salesman would come down and you're haggling about price per to the relative to the ms msrp in the old days i think it's going to look something along the lines of you want car xyz in silver with these bells and whistles. Well, if you want it delivered in the next two weeks, here's the 25 that I've got in inventory through the country or coming in on a boat or off the assembly line or however it looks, right? And you might, as a consumer, unfortunately, you might not get the color you want. You might not get all the features. You might have to pay up for some. Or, you know, if you want that exact model, what does your lead time look like? Does it look like you know, a month or whatever it is when we get into a more normalized environment. But I think that that's how auto is going to look in the sale. So then it goes to what you were mentioning from, you know, Detroit and, and I grew up in Cleveland. So, you know, the old, the, the old cliche in, in, in the Midwest, when, when Detroit caught a cold, the Midwest got the flu. <laughs> you know, basically goes to exactly what you're saying with the industry behind it of your suppliers, your EMS and everything else. I think there's a couple of things that are going on. One that we've learned just from COVID 
as autos emerged as a big market for electronics, one, the auto OEMs showed they weren't very ex experienced in procuring components, right? So they are becoming more hands-on. And I think the net of that is, is they are gonna look to their suppliers, they are gonna be more involved, they're gonna be more involved in the procurement, and they're also gonna have to figure out how do you automate, because remember, that's been the early Tesla bottlenecks around production, a lot of it was Tesla was really trying to pioneer robots yeah. and, and they were building their own robots when you go back a couple of years ago. So they, they've shown an ability to do that. And I think to your point, I think the entire auto industry is going to have to catch up to some extent. On a side note, we do have, you know, thinking about different sales markets, for those traditional OEMs that have largely historically relied on an internal combustion engine, the last I've read, there's something like a 10 or $20 billion dealer level infrastructure needed to support charging, service. It's These aren't the same cars, which you touched on. So it's not driving in where the bread and butter of your transaction with a warranty and your loyalty is you're getting an oil change because there's not a drop of oil in that car, right? It's computers, it's a high-tech service. So, you know, when I think of the opportunity for us as a country, um, you know, be a little big picture, you know, big picture, maybe a little hopeful about the future for America, you know, we've got to really work and embrace job training around robotics, around engineering. And we, you know, I think there, there's, there's opportunities with that. It also scares me a little bit politically if we have the wherewithal to think through that. But we've got to retrain our workforce for what the new economy looks like. I cannot agree. I mean, you hit a lot of valid points and everything I echo of what you said. A lot of a lot of a lot of things are going to change. And we are in that inflection point. And I think 2023, my prediction is the inflection point where a lot of things are going to change. A lot of things are reset. People have to really look out. Are they, they have strategy or have to refocus their strategy? Because a lot of the technologies change. Again, a lot of the SaaS based software, the analytics, mm -hmm. the insights, the dashboards, people are seeing things for the real time. And as you know, manufacturing general is very traditional based. A lot of these mm -hmm. companies don't have all the fancy softwares. They're just build the OEM inventors. They give it to a contract manufacturer. That guy just builds to the spec. They use basic ER old, you know, kind of ancient ERP systems. There aren't all the, the high SAPs and Oracles. They're running off of other emits. The 1% do that. There's the others who are normal, the mid mid-size, and there's billions of dollars of spend on those on those mid-size. And they don't have all the analytics. But now how to how to repurpose procurement supply chain how do we get the parts on time how the data insights now with apis and all these things of real-time data like the amazon effect mm -hmm. is now being transacted now down to the b2b into the manufacturing sector how do we connect all these how do we improve the efficiencies how do we do this and it's it's driving that um through the to real to reinvent the technology and today compute as you know to compute has got so cheap that yeah. The, the, that that compute, that pro microprocess is so cheap and so powerful that you can build amazing solutions, technology, software solutions on top of it. That when we go, I can break into now of the, the SaaS space or the cloud systems, but that's really, I can see, in my opinion, what I've seen, I've been through this industry, I was born and raised in this industry, I can see that it's exciting. The future is bright, but we're in a inflection point of change.
I, I agree with you, Rob, 100%. And, and it, you know, as you know, for some, and for all of us, change is also, it's exciting, but it could also be scary, right? And, 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 you know, I think that's, um, I think that's the thing to watch because, you know, you, you, you touched on, I mean, I, I could pull my, you know, this right here is more powerful than the computer that I had when I went to college 20 plus years ago. And it's what I used to call mom, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and then when you think about workers in general, what amazes me having, you know, young kids, I, I've got a two-year-old that knows how to swipe an iPad and, you know, hit whatever app to do the ABCs or the number yeah. or whatever, where I've got a mom who is still calling me to help her book a flight because she's afraid of putting her credit card in a website. So, you know, when, when you think about that and go to market and, and you've touched on, you know, whether it's, you know, even in the B2B, you know, the Amazon effect extends well beyond the B2C consumer, right? And, and it's, you know, we've got an entire generation of workers that their expectations of how you do business in general is different. So, you know, regardless, I, I, I believe, and I've had a lot of these conversations with a number of people in the industry, you know, you've got to kind of think about how do you connect to your customers, whether it's on social media, whether it's on LinkedIn, whether it's on WhatsApp, WeChat, what, you know, these are things that, I mean, they didn't exist five years ago or 10 yeah. years ago, right? And, and that's where business is being done. So it does extend and it goes to your point on the inflection. It, it has been very, very rapid. And, you know, we could have a real serious debate yeah. on it. it happened too quick, but yeah. it is what it is in that point. And it's exciting, but, the, you know, the change isn't going to slow and it's never slowed at any point. So you've kind of got to embrace it and, and then hopefully figure out where to, you know, where to invest in and where, where to allocate resources around it. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And that's for, for us, you know, it's been, even as a, as a leader in a company, you know, I, I, I love to learn from people like yourselves and data and information, just like people that have knowledge, but also it's like, what do we take that knowledge and how do we invest back into our companies for the future? Because we're investing not just in the people and the technology that can create IP in these days. I think today it's about IP. Like you have to build internal company businesses IP through the brand, through the processes. It's not all, the IP doesn't lay within the people as much as it used to. And that, know, that, that's a change. It's, it's um, you know, without going into too many details yeah. at Edgewater, our, our process, you know, historically our process is, and our IP is our people. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in our, semiconductor or hard tech team, as I mentioned, we've got 50 plus years collective experience across the five of us. That's our intellectual property. And when we think, and we have just some of these conceptually where we want our businesses to grow or to go, it, it, is, it is about, you know, some levels of automation, even in our process. There's some things we just flat out with our process and how we do it, you can't automate it, but we've got to figure out a way to make the business more resilient and more enduring, you know, over time 
and that involves not changing what our core is, what we're good at, but how do we enhance it? And I, you know, I heard you say that a couple of times and, and where do we invest to do it? And yeah. And yeah, again, you're never going to get rid of people with automation, but there is just more advanced ways because a lot of successions happening. A lot of the workforce and ingenuity is leaving the workforce that, you know, the boomers and you got the, you know, are leaving and that succession changes and things are changing and they leave with that. And of course, the new generation is not so, I would say, centric to come into some of these sectors of business sectors to take over. And it, it causes these gaps, right? And I think from, have you seen any of that? How about in your end? Have you seen any from the research? You seeing that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, um, you know, for a bulk of my career, Robin, you, you know, my bulk of my career was either spent doing research on the, the semiconductor or hard tech industry, or I worked in insurance. <laughs> and and those, those, are, those are two, um, you know, those are two marketplaces that I've seen some similarities between the two of them and, and part of it is you know how they go to market where there's an intermediary between distribution um you know and, and then part of it is just you know how they engage with customers it was this view that especially b2b has to be somewhat manual and heavy historical right and, and then what we're seeing and, and you know and i engage a lot with distribution the rep community the supplier you know and you you touched about we've got a significant crop especially of analog engineers yeah. that are aging to retirement age and there's a gap so how do you transfer that knowledge right i look at it big picture the rep environment which reminds me a lot of distribution or the agent broker relationship and insurance those businesses are a lot based on technical knowledge whether it's engineering and rep or insurance knowledge in it but it's also personal relationships inside of a, te a territory <laughs> so those relationships have been built over decades and so as you're bringing new people in you know it you've got the relationships you know quote unquote at the top but those don't translate to the next generation of leaders. So, you know, those those are some of the conversations that that we have when we're engaging. And you know, by no means we're not an we're not an HR consulting firm, nor do we claim that we've got the patent to to figure that out. But those are some of the conversations and the questions when when people in that distribution or that rep or that supplier, it's it's how do we deal with this intellectual property tran knowledge transfer to the next generation of leaders. What does that look like and how do we do it? And it's, you know, it's, I, I would argue if you were in your twenties and, and you, you're an electrical engineer, it's probably a really exciting time because there is a little bit of a barbell in terms of where that talent from paper gap is. Um, but then it's the leaders on you know on this side of the barbell. How do they transfer that knowledge to the other? And that's where the that's that's where the art comes in over the science. And and I think people are really working hard to figure out how to do. I agree. I agree one hundred one hundred percent. And as we wrap this up quickly, I said we can talk forever. I know. Up, my my uh, final question: How I mean to give a quick listeners like what, what's your outlook? I mean we talked about twenty the next year, but what's your outlook in Q four? What you know, we started it. What, what's your outlook right now into the component industry right now? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for, you know, for the fourth quarter, we're, you know, call it five days in, right? So I, I think, I think the fourth quarter will be fine. So if, if, if I had to put a number on, you know, quarter over quarter growth for 3Q, probably low single digit range, three, 4% quarter over quarter growth. And then I, I think we're going to be somewhere in that two to 3% quarter over growth, quarter growth in 4Q. What's carrying that, again, as, as I mentioned earlier when we were talking, you've got delinquent backlogs that are supporting you through the end of the year and you have capacity coming. So, you know, I think this year ends okay, absolutely on a year over year basis. We've seen moderation, but I think we'll grow 15% this year. Next year, I think, you know, that's when we run into that cyclicality and, and we're, we're base casing next year in the down call it seven eight percent year over year mm -hmm. in a somewhat normalized stable state economy which there's no guarantees of that and then also in a stable state pricing environment which is the thing looking into 23 i think that we're watching the closest right price has been a huge tailwind for the industry probably underappreciated we're seeing some instances of certain suppliers that have been constrained who have seen you know, more competition based on their supply disruptions re-engaging the marketplace. And, and we're watching that closely because I think that's the biggest risk if you call down seven or eight for next year base case. The risk of that being a down 15 or a down 20 is you know, A, does the economy really, really hit the skids or B, do people really lean aggressively into price? But I mean, yeah. it doesn't change the structural growth. I still think it'll be a trillion dollar business by the end of the decade. I 100% agree. And we can't, in certain geopolitics, we can't control what's outside. We can't control the world stuff. So that can also have an effect. But this has been fantastic, Dennis. I really appreciate it. And I think like, oh, we should start doing a quarterly one. This would be great I, to get quarterly updates from you. I, you would, you know, would love to, Rob. We'll, we'll definitely have to be in touch. It was great to be, it was great to be here. And thanks again for the invite. Yeah, thank you for being a guest and the insights and the listeners. Thank you guys all. I mean, again, this is Dennis Reed for, uh, from Edgewater Research. He is the man with the data. He can really show you and give you the real picture what's happening, what happened in the past, what's happening in the future. And hopefully could bring some good insights and people to business leaders and people to start thinking a little bit about a lot of things, what's changing in the world. So thanks right. again. Thanks again for coming on. Excellent. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. And we're live.